0: you
1: love equity and social justice? Are you looking for somebody who's single but also woke, but knows that if you call yourself woke, it means that you're not? Well, (laughs) right on into my DMs, baby, because I'm here waiting for you.
0: Lauren has a future in
1: radio.
2: (laughs) Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Equality Matters. It's yo lady. The one D'Angelo's referring to. Mandy Bynum. <sighs> I'm starting to feel like I do that every time I sit down with you all. And it's probably because I've just had a chance to listen back to the episode that I'm about that I'm about to intro. And I'm just so like feeling like I can take a clean and deep breath of inspiration. And it just feels nice. I met Lauren Burke, the COO of Camp Equity, at one of those lightning workshops for entrepreneurs that she was hosting. She was playing banging ass music. Her energy was like a triple espresso shot. And she was 0.00% messing around. And as soon as I found out what she and Donnie Belcher, the CEO of Camp Equity, were doing, I was emailing them both immediately to see if we could chat more. Because, you know, something I hear a lot when talking to white leaders in the tech industry, at least, is like this rabbit hole circle talk to the root cause of racism and how the solution is so far removed from what they do every day. You know, it's the coding schools, it's the high schools, it's the U.S. US education system that's the problem. It's just a system. It's nothing I can do. And the actual anecdotes, I just, you know, write down in my journal and file it under hashtag excuses white people make. But, you know, conceptually, I can totally understand the feeling of hopelessness while at the same time knowing that it's really just another way of avoiding responsibility for doing anything to dismantle the systems of white supremacy. And also, you know, there are Organizations doing this work in the codes, in the code schools, in the high schools, in middle schools, and at Camp Equity, Donnie and Lauren are bringing conversations specifically around social justice issues to kids as young as nine. And yo, when I think back to when I was nine, I was dealing with multiplication, memorizing capitals of countries that I assumed I would never visit. And I was having what I didn't know were anxiety attacks around the standardized tests that I was told I wouldn't score well on and that I'd have to pick a race. I couldn't fill in for both. And while, don't get me wrong, I had a lot of confidence at the time and wasn't taking no mess from nobody, but I can only imagine what I would have been like if I had access to a program like the one Donnie and Lauren are creating, like I would have been so out of my mind, outspoken, more than I already was, to the point where I probably would have started wearing capes and a superhero mask to school and would have been the bane of my teacher's existence. And while I'm guessing it's probably because of my love for BTS and young adult literature, most of what comes up on my Netflix queue are like high school coming of age dramas, but I thoroughly enjoy them. And also, I'm so amped by what these kids are talking about. And granted, you know, these are the Netflix shows, and I don't know if these are actually happening in high schools, I, but I would imagine, because, you know, art imitates life. They're talking about concepts that I couldn't even wrap my head around until like two years ago when I turned 22. <laughs> and as much as I hated growing up, I would almost do it all over again. If I could be a camp equity camper, seriously, but I'll stop there and let them talk more about all the cool things they're doing. See you on the other side.
0: Hello, I am Donnie Belcher. I am a proud co-founder and CEO of Camp Equity. And today I am feeling lovely. It's a beautiful 40 degree weather day in sunny Minneapolis. So I'm very good today.
2: You look
1: good. good. My name is Lauren Burke. I'm a Sagittarius. Mandy's disappointed that I don't know my moon or my sun sign. And she also thinks I'm much more serious than I actual am in real life. So I I have many goals for today.
2: Uh thank you. Thank you so much for the two of you. Uh Lauren that lipstick on point. Donnie, you look beautiful, glowing. Um I wanna, you know, people can find out about your careers through Google, which is free, or LinkedIn, which is also free for the most part. I would love to know, um, we'll start with you, Donnie. how you got here into this space, into this work that you're doing, and um, all the circumstances that led you here.
0: Awesome, thank you so much for having me, Mandy. And hello to everyone who is tuning in. Thank you so much for tuning in. So how did I arrive to becoming a CEO and co-founder of Camp Equity? The story for me would really have to start when I was um, 12 years old in sixth grade. I had the opportunity to participate in a program called Freedom Schools, which was um, created by the Children's Defense Fund and had the opportunity to meet my personal and someone who is um, a mentor of mine, um, Marion Wright Edelman. And in Freedom Schools, that was the first time that I really learned about, um, kind of from a, a structured standpoint, learned about racism, learned about inequity. It was the first time that I met people who had went to college. They were like young professionals who were basically like facilitating all of our learning. Um, and it was just a transformative summer for me. And it was then that I decided that a, I was very passionate about education and youth, and b, I was committed to continuing the work of the civil rights leaders that I had learned about in in um, Freedom School that summer, including folks like Ella Baker, folks like you know Martin Luther King, and all of the civil rights leaders that you know we now know and love. Fast forward, I taught high school in Chicago for 12 years and quickly realized that I could probably have more impact outside of the classroom. Mm
1: -hmm. So in
0: 2014, I left teaching and um, jumped into the nonprofit sector as a nonprofit founder. And ever since that day, I've been thinking about what I can do to help young people to navigate the challenges that that exist in their lives, particularly um, low-income, Black and Brown youth um, are my passion, and um, met Lauren in 2014, and I'm sure we're going to talk more about uh, our relationship together, but that was certainly a pivotal moment in my life as well, as Lauren became a dear friend and sister and um, co-conspirator and all the things, and January of 2021, I woke up, and I was CEO and co-founder of Camp Equity,
1: And here we are. And hi, everybody. My name is Lauren Burke. Um, I am a cis white woman speaking to you all from Connecticut. Um, Probably where my journey began was when I was eight years old. And I really wanted to cut my hair short. And my mother wouldn't let me cut my hair. And so I decided to hold my very first ever protest. And Ah. I made a bunch of little protest posters. And I marched around my driveway, uh, chanting, "It's not fair. Let me cut my hair." Um, we could have a whole conversation about hashtag white privilege. That that's what was my first protest was about. Uh, but but I think from then on, I just really became passionate about youth and youth justice and youth knowing what's best for us and and just creating a better world. And that was sort of my first my first. Um, venture into uh, causing good trouble, let's say, and luckily, um, it expanded from just being about me and my hair to being larger about how to create more equity in the world. Um, I lived in China in high school for a year in high school and came back and was a translator um, for students from China in the classroom. And in 2002, Massachusetts, did away with transitional bilingual education policies as part of a a white supremacist wave that was creating more English-only implementation in classrooms in the early 2000s. And that was the first time I really saw the impact that a law could have on the the individual lives of a child. Again, because I grew up middle class, white, fully abled um, citizen, all of that. Uh, I was pretty good at arguing by that point, and so I thought about doing a career in the law. Um, Was originally interested in education law, but after meeting with a number of Chinese youth who were trafficked from China to the United States to work in restaurants here, um, decided that I really wanted to go into immigration law. And one of the things that I quickly realized was how often lawyers who are adults really hoarded their knowledge, right? I think this is again uh, tied to white supremacy and adultism, but a way in which people can only access their rights if they go to somebody with more power rather than knowing what the mechanisms are to unlock their own rights. So started a series of programs to teach uh, immigrant youth on what their rights were and then had them go out and teach others. Um, mm. From that started a nonprofit organization similar to Donnie that was a cooperative and a collective for undocumented youth. Um, met her in 2014, as she said, um, right away knew that she was somebody that I admired, somebody I wanted to work with, somebody I felt energy from, and somebody who had um, you know similar visions of the ways in which youth were the power to creating a better world. And so Mm -hmm. when the concept of Camp Equity came to me in the summer of 2020, immediately knew that the only person um, that I could do this with um, full-time was Donnie and sent her a text Mm -hmm. saying, I have an idea and the rest is history.
2: Wow. Yeah, so let's talk more about that. Like I said, we'll get into Camp Equity later, but um lauren i know that you've had a journey through white supremacy and, and what that's meant for your career and how it's how it's informed your career and donnie i know that you have of course have lived experience you were in the education system um and you've probably had a journey as well i i, I want to talk a little bit about lauren how um uh, we were talking last week about going deeper into leadership and like what you saw in yourself that reflected your own white supremacy values that you had to unlearn and how, when you met Donnie, um, maybe those things either exasperated or like how you two really brought those things to the forefront when you first met.
1: Sure. I mean, it's, it's, I, I would never say anything is unlearned with a hard ed at the end, because I think it's Mm -hmm. a constant practice. And I think that one of the worst things that we, as white people can fall into is thinking, that we've unlearned everything and that we're sort of done with our anti-racist education because um, we will be constantly faced with it. Um, and it is incredibly easy as a person with white privilege to slide into the, um, as Leila Sad calls it, warm blanket of uh, white supremacy. And so it's, it's a constant practice. I think I, I was definitely raised in the 90s in a quote unquote politically correct area where we were not we were told that it was wrong to say black and white like literally the first time i ever heard anybody use the word black um in just a general everyday context was when i had moved to china and was around other white americans because Mm -hmm. i was told not to say that um because it was this whole like we're all the same humans are all the same i don't see color that mindset um which which we know now is real and we knew then right but uh, is more talked about now how damaging that is um and i absolutely had a lot of trails of white saviorism right like mm-hmm. i i and it came from i would like to think a place of good intentions um but my mother's a social worker social work started definitely from white supremacy i mean all of this does Um, but definitely was from a mindset of like, oh, how can I help people? Like it was the, how can I give a voice to the voiceless rather than think about like, well, we only think of them as voiceless because their voice has been stolen by white people, right? Mm. Um, They themselves are not voiceless. And so it was really something that in 2016, and it was was a slow, I mean, it's a slow process. Um, One of the first really big realizations I had was that I really took it as a badge of honor that I was making very little money when I graduated from law school. Um, and, you know, was just proud of that fact without recognizing kind of how disgusting that is. Um, because it's only, you only feel comfortable making a low income if you don't need money. And you only don't need money if you come from a place of privilege. And so I sort of had this realization that by me being a part of, of, you know, glorifying martyrdom in that way, it was both furnishing this white savior perspective and it was also ensuring that only white people and only privileged white people could be public interest and social justice lawyers, right? Because my, mm-hmm. my clients would never be able to be a lawyer accepting such a low salary because they had families to support. They didn't have the comfort of knowing that their parents could support them for an extra month or two if need be, right? And so it was through moments like that where I was like, oh my gosh, what I've always thought was the right way to do social justice and nonprofit work is actually just perpetuating the problem. And I think that's why we see so many of these same inequities continue to exist because we're not getting at any of the root causes, right? We're like slapping Band-Aids at the problem without really looking at the root cause of white supremacy. I mean, nonprofits were, a lot of them were started as charities for rich white women to have something to do to keep their time occupied, right? And Mm -hmm. so, for example, the fact that um, a lot of foundations don't give money to overhead, the fact that a lot of nonprofits still don't have parental leave, all of this are all rooted in white supremacy and it keeps the power in the same place. So I'm going off topic a little bit. But in 2016, I decided like I should not be the leader of an organization, especially not an organization where of the like 700 young people we served, one was white, I think, and he was from Poland. So I was like, mm-hmm. this is not the place for me to be a leader. And instead really wanted to use my privileges and the things in which I had learned to help support other um, black and brown leaders who had the lived experience, who didn't have better solutions than I ever would, and just use my energies to fuel their efforts.
2: Yeah. Love okay. it. And Donnie, when um, through through working in education and uh, how did that inform your experience when you went into nonprofit? And we can talk about, you know, the the expectation of a black woman when and if she starts a nonprofit. And and then like let's talk about how how that, how that came to inform your relationship for you specifically,
0: Absolutely. me? Absolutely, so um, education for me was um, just kind of like, basically like a front row seat to what was happening in our country um, in terms of in particular class. So I taught at a school in Chicago called Whitney Young Magnet High School, um, one, of the, one of the three schools that I taught at which also happens to be the um, alma mater of former First Lady Michelle Obama. Mm-hmm. And Whitney Young was one of the first um, magnet schools in the country. It started in the 1970s and very intentionally um, would recruit students who were a third white, a third black, and then a third what they would call other, which mm-hmm. um, changed over time. At, and in time, it was you know, um, Latinx. In time, it was um european immigrants just kind of depended on it depends on what decade you look at the school um and i quickly learned about what i i will call and what we called an education creaming which is essentially this idea that um you would go all around the city of chicago and you would get the quote unquote most gifted academically uh, most academically gifted students to attend the school and what would happen is other students would be expected to go to their neighborhood school, which was less resourced, which had um, teachers who were not as experienced and um, just reinforced um, kind of white supremacy from a very different kind of the, the capitalistic arm of white supremacy um, is what, what I saw in practice every day. And as a black woman who went to public schools my entire life, um, went to primarily quote unquote neighborhood schools. I instantly saw just how class um, and in particular social capital can change the trage- trajectory of a young person's life regardless mm-hmm. of race and so I felt you know and and you know I was a part of like the Chicago teacher union strike that happened um, in like what was that like 2014 I want to say mm-hmm. um, and largely, just started to feel like I wasn't in the best possible place for what change that I wanted to see in the world, right? Um, the students who couldn't test into Whitney Young, the students who didn't have parents, who um, had the time, right, all the time to like, do all of the research and do all of the advocacy that was required to get their kids into a school like Whitney Young. You know, I wanted to work with those young people,
2: mm-hmm. so. And what, sorry, Johnny. What uh, what how did that how did that impact you? How did that impact your teaching and the way you were able to do your job?
0: Did you feel like you were you were jaded after a while? So um I wouldn't say jaded, but definitely disheartened mm-hmm. because we did have some students who were recruited from low um low income neighborhoods who weren't necessarily as who weren't considered academically gifted. And what I found were like those were the students that I was most passionate about. So while I was there, for example, I created, um, co-created this program that would basically work with incoming freshmen to ensure that they had all of the um, interventions and the resources that they needed to be successful. So whether that meant like making special arrangements so that they could receive transportation, because yeah. they didn't, they were didn't want to stay after school because if they stayed after school too late, they would be going back to neighborhoods where they felt unsafe. And so, you know, what can we do to like remove the barriers that exist that create one reality for students who were low income, primarily black, primarily Hispanic, versus those who were who not. Um, and you know, just after doing that kind of work in that context, just really felt a calling that I needed to do more of that work, but but in in community, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in community where students weren't being pulled out or isolated because of whatever privilege that, and in, in this case, it wasn't white privilege, right? It was um, class privilege. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And so tell, tell let's go into 2014 when you met um, and what, what 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 it was about each other that was so magnetic and, and how that plays out today.
0: So, yeah, I can start um, when I first met Lauren uh, what I remember is uh, just her energy um, at the time. If I'm not mistaken, our very first conversation was Lauren recruiting other fellows to come and do yoga or something like that because we were in a retreat for that week. Um, and I just love just like her energy and, and her spirit in doing that. And also quickly, you know, quickly realized that we both had a love um, of youth, Right very different, right? Lauren was coming from um, New England, I was coming from the Midwest, but we both had this lens of looking at the next generation and like what what can and should be done to elevate and amplify um, those young people. And so throughout the years, Lauren and I would always check in regularly about what was happening with our individual work, but then also anytime there was anything um, Anything in the world that was happening that was just like super challenging. So, whether it was like when Trump got elected and, you know, shortly thereafter, you know, Lauren decided to uh, get in a van and go and provide legal support um, to people who needed it, whether it was this past year after George Floyd was murdered. Um, And then also just as we kind of pivoted throughout our, our different career choices, you know, I did some consulting work. Um, or started to do consulting work in 2019, Lauren had been doing that work a little bit longer than me. So I'm calling Lauren, Lauren, how do you approach pricing? What should I charge for this? What should go on my website? How do you decide your services? And so we've really just been, um, you know, I would call us almost like business besties for the longest. Um, And then just like friends, just checking in on each other over the years. And every year since 2014, we've always say, we wanna work together. We got to do yeah. something together. And it yeah. was just like, but well, we couldn't, we never really landed on what that something would be. Although we have had lots of ideas over the years until July of last year, when, yeah. um, when we spoke about at the time, what was called the school of the resistance that mm-hmm. would eventually become um, Camp Equity. And Lauren, when
2: you, when you first met together, um, or when you, like you, you called Donnie with the idea and... And you talked last time about like the important decisions you made up front around your, like how you would, how you would, um, confront, I suppose, the dynamic between you two with, with a, like a plan ahead of how you would run the business. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. Um, I mean, I, I also just want to say that like one of the most incredible things that I think that Donnie has taught me is, or something I'm just constantly looking to her to learn from is. Grace and compassion. Um, I we both. I think what what really draws us together is a true sense of authenticity. We both mm-hmm. say it how it is, and we call people out and we call people in. Um, I tend to be a little hot headed, <laughs> and and Donnie's ability to look at things from such different perspectives is beautiful and incredible, um, mm-hmm. and also just the 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 sense of like boundaries of just recognizing like it's not always going to work with everybody and everything and um i just find donnie to be this like epitome of grace and compassion and wonder and so i just i'm always learning that from her um you know i i think very early on like i've gone through my own journey of like from you know kind of being canceled by a couple of people and sort of thinking like oh my god i should never do anything ever again um to to really realizing this past year oh maybe I should just be working with white people maybe that's like I should just be a part of like the dismantling efforts to then really realizing like for me it's you know if we're going to like we need everyone in this fight mm-hmm. together right and that's just how I feel like I completely respect people that are like I actually don't want to work with white people at all I think that's totally fair given this and what's going on Um, But, you know, Donnie and I have spoken really frankly. I was like, I'm gonna mess up. I'm gonna mess up in real ways. Um, And, you know, I'm fine giving example of how I messed up because I think it's important. Like I, we were, we applications had closed, right? And so um, we'd closed applications for this current session which is called Celebrating Black Lives. And I got a text message. Um, another parent had given my number out to another parent, and I got a text message saying, "Like, I'd really like my daughter to be able to sign up for the session." And in my mind, I was thinking, "Okay, well, I'm just—I'm not going to just like open this up to you know anybody because we've already closed the session and it does take things. But like, we don't know when we're going to offer a celebrating Black Lives session again. So if this child is Black, like, absolutely, I want to let them in." I didn't explain any of that. All I wrote back to the text message is like, is your child black? Of course, ah! not realizing the impact that would have on this parent who's texting me and like what that question has meant historically and all of this. So I had to be like, I was like, Donnie, I really messed up and I just need to tell you about it. And, you know, again, like she has such compassion and grace, but just being really real about, I'm not, again, I think white people that think they're going to be perfect. Are are extra problematic in a lot of ways, right? I mean, Martin Luther mm-hmm. King talked about that that it's not uh, that it's the well meaning moderate, right? And so, both both taking responsibility for the ways in which I will continue to educate myself and and continue to try and do better, but also, you know, Maya Angelou talks about making mistakes and then you learn and then you make new mistakes and mm-hmm. and being grateful to find a partner um, who is willing to be compassionate with me in that but who also pushes me to do better right who's also like all right well here's things to do and people to read and and ways in which to explore that um but i think it's a really real dynamic that that black people who choose to work with white people have to decide like am i am i gonna be okay with that and not saying that you should have to be but like white supremacy has its claws so deep in all of us And one of the ways in which it does hurt white people, although of course not to the anywhere near the extent that it hurts others, is because it makes us not being the greatest friends and co-conspirators sometimes, right? Because we are um, so conditioned in some ways. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, wow. And how, so how did that show up in some of your early decisions?
0: I can can talk about that. Um, And what I would say is, um, from the very beginning, we established uh, what I would call both safe and brave spaces, mm-hmm. and what that means is that Lauren and I—I I mean, you know—we're we're in our upper upper thirties, and so we've we've had a long history of professional and working in professional environments. Mm-hmm. And so, what that looked like when we first started working together was talking about and naming some of the harm that has taken place throughout our careers on both sides, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, you kind of name the harm and you recognize that in many ways, you know, um, there's kind of almost a PTSD when it comes to some of the trauma that we've been through um, in other workplaces. Mm -hmm. So for example, as a black woman founder of, um, the co-founder of the first nonprofit and founding executive director that I started, there was a lot of harm done in the space of fundraising and in the space of uh, development, right? Mm-hmm. Um, everything from foundations paying non-black people to replicate work that we were doing, everything from um, just the whole nurturing you know, relationships, it looking very different for me as a black founder compared to others. Um, I'll never for- forget being in a fundraising class Um, and I was one of maybe two or three um, black people out of 30, and Mm -hmm. someone raised their hand and they were like, I started my organization because my grandmother wrote a check for $30,000. And like, that's how I got my start. And I'm sitting there, (laughs) I'll never forget, sitting there and looking around the room, feeling like shocked that shocked about that because I'm like, my granny doesn't have $30 (laughs) to give to me, let alone 30,000, right? Um, And so, Bringing all of that to the to the beginning of the conversation with Camp Equity was super important. And how that translated it, it was number one. Lauren does an incredible job of making sure that she both sees and hears, right? And, and that's important. But then also action, right? And so when we started talking about salary negotiations, like most women, like most Black women specifically, I was severely you know, under undercharging, if you will, and under my expertise and my brilliance and my background. And, you know, it would take Lauren to say, no, we're not going to do, we're not going to say $60,000. we are going to say 100000 No, we're going to do this particular benefit. And even now, you know, I'm um, expecting my first child um, very soon. And um, Lauren was really intentional about designing a parental leave policy that is um, that is very, I would say both generous from kind of a corporate perspective compared to other companies but that is was also so sensitive to the nuances of like what happens when a woman is expecting right mm-hmm. um, And so I think all of those early conversations were super important and were just like an affirmation and a confirmation for me that Lauren is is um, not only the best partner, but like the only partner that I would want to work with um, at this stage in my life, and uh, we just keep, you know, we we are, we kind of toss the ball and keep it rolling, in terms of just like being honest about our feelings, being honest about um, where we are mentally and psychologically, because a lot of people do not, you know, it's like taboo to bring our whole selves to work, um, and we're just like breaking all of that up and, and trying mm-hmm. to create a space in which. Everyone can be their whole self. Everyone can um, can just be, show up as they are, right? Yeah. Um, because yeah. that allows us to do our best work.
2: Yeah. And, it's, and it's, it's really, I can completely resonate with it because there's so many well-meaning white folks, I, like, not not as many as Austin Zorn, I will say, um, but it's, it's, it's like, it's really hard with there, there has to be courage on both ends and commitment on both ends. And some days you just like don't feel like correcting people. and You just want to be mad at them. <laughs> so you just like I can't with you today. Um, and I, I, I imagine that happens to the two of you as well. And um, there were. I want to transition into camp equity with you because it's just such a such a cool. I'm so excited for you two. And um, with with any nonprofit, there's fundraising. With any nonprofit, there's a decision to how. How will people be charged? Or how will participants participate? Um, and I'd love to know like, what is what is something you're proud of around that, around fundraising and how uh, students get involved?
1: Yeah, so um, we very early on really wanted to create Make camp equity be as accessible as possible because you know again I think I think how white supremacy had shown up in my life was I I canceled a lot of people pretty early on um, in ways which after the, George Floyd was murdered. I had a lot of people come to me asking for resources. And my first reaction kind of wanted to be yelling at a lot of them and just being like, you're kind of late to the party, right? But realizing that that wasn't going to help anybody or help anything. And they were people actually asking. And so if they were really going to show up in these brave ways, I wanted to show up in that same way. And so um, because of that, really wanted to create camp equity, not just for, you know, young people who had a lot of understanding about social justice, not just for young people um, who maybe needed it, but anybody who wanted it. So one of the things that we're most proud of is our sliding scale model. Um, And what that means is Camp Equity for some of our campers, for 25% of our campers, it's completely free to come to. They don't pay anything. We have other campers that pay $1,500 for Camp Equity. And How our sliding scale works is it's totally honor based. So parents come in or guardians or or any caregiver can come into the system and they sort of look at what they would like to pay, but rather than have it be a passive experience where they just see an amount, it's an active experience where we're also educating those on income and equity um, in the United States. So for example, our first paid tier is $24 an hour, and we label that um, to be for minimum wage hourly workers. And it's $24 because if the minimum wage actually kept up with the rate of productivity and inflation in the United States, it would not be the... Pitiful, whatever the minimum federal minimum wage is right now, it actually would be $24 an hour. That would be the minimum wage. And so that's why that, that is. Um, and then we also talk about, you know, a lot of people think that the top 10% of income in the United States means that you're making over $500,000. And that's not the case. It's $100,000, right? And so we're confronting people with actual income inequity and, and giving them the stats and the figures. We also always have an equity ticket available um which is for groups that have been historically oppressed from from receiving and maintaining and building wealth in this country um and so that's part of one of the things that we're really excited about and proud of and we've had parents actually say that they learned through this process and then i mean my favorite thing that happened is we actually had two parents um we had a, a specific module i think it was our third week that was on income and equity in the united states and we brought in Carlos Marcvera, an amazing, um, uh, the amazing founder of Pay Our Interns. Um, And we had two parents after that week who wrote to us and say, you know what? I didn't pay enough um, for camp. I'm going to pay more, which was really incredible because it showed us that they were either listening in or their kids were talking to them about what they heard. And then they realized like, oh, shoot, I do need to step it up a little bit more. Um, And that's been really powerful and really incredible to see.
2: Yeah, that is really amazing. And what kind of have there been any particular learnings that you didn't expect or unintended impacts um, that you've learned from by doing that by having this model like we're not charging enough uh, or we're charging too much
1: yeah i mean we're still we're still honestly we're still in the iteration phases of it and so we're we're definitely exploring a bunch of different models um you know one of the things that we've we've realized is there campers who are now? I I swear, if they were old enough to get tattoos, they would get camp equity tattooed on their forearms because they are obsessed with it. And so we are thinking about okay, there are parents who do maybe have a higher incomes, but if their kids are coming four times a year, you know that might be approaching ten grand. And so, how, which maybe is fine, um, but they're also but they also might be involved in other, you know, charitable giving that they're doing. And so one of the things that we also do is we engage in wealth redistribution. Right. And so what that looks like is when our instructors come and speak, and I'm sure Donnie soon will explain how Camp Equity works and what it looks like. But when our instructors come and speak, we pay them. Right. There, there's such a history of um, social justice leaders in general, but black and brown leaders in particular, of uh, doing a lot of unpaid labor. Right. To educate folks. Um, and so they all get paid. And one of the really neat things um, has been seeing that some of these now the the families with more means are now becoming donors and funders of their organizations, right? Um, and the the you know we also though do talk about that it's not just money that's a way to give resources, right? Because we have we've had campers say like, well, what can I do if I can't donate? It's about You know, you have a TikTok account. Like, talk about this cool organization on your TikTok account, right? Spread the word. Like, here are other ways in which to do it. So, I think the impact that rethinking about this is having on the kids in the ways in which they interact with the larger world in general is is really exciting. Yeah,
2: chills, chills. Yes, please. Let's get into camp equity. Tell, uh, like, uh, tell us all about it, Donnie. Yeah, and also, sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, and then, Lauren, I'd like you to follow up that of like how you two go about fundraising as in your roles, like how your roles play in the fundraising. Okay, go. Cool. Sorry, Donnie, go ahead.
0: That's okay. Thank you. So Camp Equity um, is a virtual online school or a program that educates third through 12th graders about social justice issues from lived, experienced leaders. So mm-hmm. what happens is our programs and we currently have um, what we call Deep Dives, Camp 101 and Camp 201. Camp 101 is basically like your introduction to social justice. You may have never heard of any of these terms before. Your your parents may not even believe that there are social justice issues. You may not believe that there are social justice issues. So this is literally like a crash course in some of the, um, of the like, movements, historical movements that have happened throughout time. So we cover everything from disability rights, to immigration rights, to mass incarceration, um, to um, to environmental justice, you name it, um, Camp 101 covers it. And it's just, mm-hmm. our goal is for campers to learn about at least one issue that really kind of like sparks sparks fire for them. And that inspires them to continue on learning about that particular issue and others. And what we you know we saw that and we do lots of evaluation and surveying and checking in with our campers and all of them kind of by the end of camp 101 have found like their issue right that they want that they are passionate about mm-hmm. and that they want to continue. Deep dives are is our opportunity to really delve deep into a single um, issue from a variety of lenses. So we're currently wrapping up our deep dive called Celebrating Black Lives, that um, talk about everything from venture capitalism within HBCUs, to um, hip hop and literacy, to community organizing through sisterhood. So campers got the opportunity to really look at the, the black experience from a very dynamic, kind of um, almost like spherical experience um, and that's so important because when it comes to equity and you know racism, stereotypes, you know people can be um, portrayed as one-dimensional and our goal is really to just celebrate and show the complexity and the dynamic nature of identity. Um, mm-hmm. Our second our uh, deep dive is coming up. Um, we will be opening opening up recruitment for that soon and registration soon but it will be called Power of Pride, and it will focus on LGBTQ plus um, communities. And we are over the moon about that because all of our programming, our campers have say-so and what they're most interested in. And so that that particular Power of Pride has been highly requested um, from the very beginning. And we're Mm -hmm. so excited to deliver that to campers. So campers come every week. They hear from a lived experience instructor, and then they go into what we call cabin time, which is um, facilitated by a young professional, usually early 20s, some in college or immediately post-college, who facilitate age-appropriate activities and conversations Mm -hmm. around the issues that they are learning about. Um, And then there's lots of music, right? Um, there's lots of energy, and our goal is to really create, virtually, the camp experience. Um, and so that's what happens at camp. They are connecting with young people from all over the country. Um, we've had students from um, our first pilot have students from over 30 states, wow. um, major cities, rural communities, all different race, um, all different genders. And um, it's just been an incredible, incredible journey. And one that really started out as a labor of love. When Lauren and I started Camp Equity, we were both full-time employed at other places. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the middle of that first camp, parents and campers were emailing us asking, when's the next one? <laughs> and that was when we really were like, okay, there's a demand and a need for this. What what needs to happen in order to make this um, a a more sustainable longer-term thing, and that's when we decided that we would go full-time because campers were like well when's the next one we hadn't even got to that that part of the conversation or anything like that um but I, i just think it just goes to show when you when you create something that is needed when you create when you um we're really led by our community in terms of our campers um, mm-hmm. And it's just—it's just been beautiful. Like I can't—I've never been more fulfilled um, in a in a job ever, and and more excited about the future.
1: And in terms of fundraising and how we make it work, um, you know, it, it, as Donnie said, like getting it really was a labor of love. We we came up with a certain number that we knew we needed to bring in from tuition mm-hmm. to at least sustain us um, a little bit. Um, Camp Equity was also co founded by Prisma Herrera, who was our third co founder, um, mm. who's an incredible uh, Latinx woman who's getting her PhD right now um, in uh, Chicano studies and is incredible. So she was in school full time while we were doing this. And so we were like, okay, wow. what's the minimum that we need? We needed to pay the instructors, the cou- or we wanted to pay the instructors and the counselors. Um, and then you know, before, while, while we were so excited to start Camp Equity, we also were like, you know, Donnie and I both um, sacrificed a lot to start our first nonprofits. When I first started Atlas, I was an adjunct law professor. I was running the legal department of a domestic violence shelter. And quite honestly, I was babysitting on the weekends to also be able to make ends meet. Um, mm-hmm. And I know Donnie was in similar experiences. And we were like, it's time for the universe to show up a little bit and say that they also want this to happen and the universe did and we had a funder say that she really believed in this work and what we were doing and what did we need and mm-hmm. you know I think I wouldn't have done this 10 years ago but I just boldly said with Donnie you know I was like this is what we need and she wrote a check to cover me and Donnie's entire salaries for the first year wow. and you know if there are any funders listening to this that's how to create real change, right? It's to give people the freedom to be able to have that space to create, right? And that trust mm-hmm. to be able to do that also. Um because it's it's really hard to to both uh create w- from a place of possibility when you're struggling to pay the bills, right? And I yeah. think that's a, that's a really real thing for so many nonprofit and social justice leaders. I know particularly those who are black, indigenous or people of color. Um, Even for profit. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, um, and then in terms of roles, uh, Donnie is our CEO um, and I'm the COO. And I very intentionally wanted to be at a role where I was like, let me do a lot of I don't know if i can say this you can beat me out but let me do a lot of the b- at work right <laughs> like let me like i'll let me see if i can figure out like hr and payroll and writing grants and doing the budgets again to free up more of your brilliant mind space to be the cre- to be a like the lead creator in all of this because again like i think that while white people can and should lead the dismantling. Um it is not our job to be do the rebuilding, right? It is like I will dismantle the bricks of the barriers that racism has put into place, but then you tell me what you want me to do with those bricks and I can be a mover, right? I will do the the that piece for you. Um so that's how we think about those different roles and very early on I also was like you know, we were on calls with a couple people where I, you know, I've obviously now, obviously, I've experienced microaggressions being a woman and being a younger woman. Um, but to see the extent to which they were uh, magnified was um, horrifying in a way that, of course, it shouldn't have been, right? I mm. should have been known. And so now I'm sort of like, y'all don't get to talk to Donnie <laughs> until I've done some vetting, right? Because that's yeah. not what I want her energy spent on, right? And and not again, not from a like, patronizing place, but from a like, she's too important to have to deal with that unless I feel comfortable enough that one, you are gonna be adding value, right? And two, that it will be, um, it'll be a space where possibility can thrive, right? Rather than having to play defense all the time. And so I think that's also one of the ways in which I, we, we look at our relationship in that in that perspective. Yeah, yeah,
2: love it, I
0: love it. When I think about it, I, I think about it in, Plus one to everything Lauren said. Um, it's really a luxury and a privilege to be able to dream, right? And I think about the fact that you know I started working, literally started working illegally at the age of twelve. They thought I was fourteen. I won't name the corporation that's still in existence that allowed, allowed that to happen. But I worked out of necessity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and have worked single jobs, two to two two to three jobs, multiple throughout my life in high school i had three jobs not out of out of necessity because you know Mm -hmm. we needed it and so to be in a in a place now where you know when lauren and i spoke about camp equity you know i was very honest about being in a place in my life where a i'm exhausted you know so you're dealing with just dealing with a person who has just been through so much um professionally fundraising all of that stuff you know it's just been a lot and so I was honest about that. And I said, mm-hmm. we both were honest about our areas of kind of like concern and our areas of challenge and pretty quickly divvied up the work in a way where we could both do what we were best at and um, and where possible, what brought us the most joy. And so yeah. absolutely, can we do, you know, because we're scrappy social entrepreneurs, we can do it all, right? <laughs> we'll take... We are totally like jump and we'll build the net on the way down. Not the, mm-hmm. We're not even looking for the net to appear. We're jumping and like building the net on the way down. Right? But being in a place now where it's like, okay, um, can I do fundraising guests? Do I enjoy it? No. And so that part of the work, it really fall, you know, falls on Lauren. And then I come in when, when it's like the closing conversation or when it's absolutely necessary. Whereas I absolutely love curriculum, absolutely love programming. So Mm -hmm. that just to be the bulk of the work that I do. And I haven't, frankly, just have never really had that freedom, right? Um, As a black woman, I've pretty much always lived by the, I do what I have to do, not what I wanna do. And that's something I think has been, um, it's generational. My mother's the same way, my grandmother's the same way. And so um, not only are we making great impact in terms of what we're doing with our campers in the world, we're also um, really changing generational narratives about what it means to work which is very very exciting because we're also providing an example to our campers to our counselors and to anyone who has the opportunity to be a part of camp equity about like there is what is you know what we say is there another world is people say another world is possible we say another world is here because we exist in the world that we want, that we want to exist, and then mm-hmm. we're like, kind of rippling out that world into what is. That makes me. I hope that makes sense.
2: It does. Yeah. And I, yes, I got chills. It's not just because the doors open and there's wind coming to my eyes, but like I'm actually also getting reclumped. Uh So I'm, I'm glad I'm far enough away from camera. Um, and and I, because I just feel that so deeply, Donnie. Like I, I felt a lot of my career doing the same thing, and now I'm like. At this point, where I'm transitioning into doing things that I want to do, and really, really, really learning over and over and over again, like how to say no to things that I don't want to do, um, and the things that like I also have to do, but like I can hire someone else to do, you know, um, and so I, I feel that, and and um, I want to we we only have a few minutes left, so I really really want to talk about uh, a little bit more about camp equity and the affinity group portion. Um, And and Donnie, you know, well, I won't. I'll speak from my experience. I've I've always been a part of affinity groups where it involved women's groups, or uh, which which were always tough for me because it was centered around white women or people of color affinity groups. Um, And the first time I really heard about a white affinity group legitimately was last year. And you use those types of uh, affinity groups, so I'd love to. know like how how you all approach the affinity groups when and what what how that what that looks like within your programming um and also lauren like what goes on in there
0: yeah so we um we do have affinity groups and we started that with this this current cycle of celebrating black lives and primarily because camp equity is so diverse we thought that it was important to create um spaces where young people who share racial and ethnic identity could gather um, and really mm-hmm. kind of saw that in the first session. What often happens in particular when we're talking about race, um, black people kind of are expected to be like the educators and the teachers. And this happens at every age, you know, mm-hmm. when slavery comes up, if you're the only black person in the room, folks wanna know, well, are you, descend- are you the descendant of slaves? I'm like, do you know your history? And it just becomes like super burdensome. So we started affinity groups. We have a black affinity group, a non-black indigenous person of color affinity group, and then a white affinity group. And um, I'll talk about what happens in the white and and, I mean the black affinity group, which is essentially a space for healing. So we are teaching young people, we're giving them tools and resources um, and really just like the language to navigate um, white supremacy, right? Mm -hmm. So we talk about affirmations. We talk about the importance of like balancing their media diets. We talk about self care. We, and, and these are kids as, as young as third grade. So it's interesting because race isn't something that we have the luxury of like learning about as, a, as a young black people. I would say race is something that racism is something that we experience pretty right. early on, right? Um, and then we learn about it kind of after we start experiencing it. And so that's the black affinity group. The non-black indigenous POC or the the non-black indigenous people of color affinity group is for campers who um, essentially want to learn how to become um, aspirational allies, but Mm -hmm. also to interrogate their relationship to anti-blackness. And so a lot of the activities are very similar to what happens in the white affinity group, but it also just talks about kind of like the shared um, oppression that exists based on your proximity to whiteness, um, mm-hmm. and then I'll go more and talk about the white affinity group. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, and, it, and I'll b- back up a little bit. For me, it was it was really again like I started. So I've been obsessed with Layla Saad, um, the author of Me and White Supremacy, for a few years now. Um, uh, she, started intergra- in- she started an Instagram. She started an Instagram. Series about me and white supremacy, which was an Instagram challenge where every day she posted, um, you know, topics like me and you and white privilege, you and white apathy, you and white saviorism, where you really had to interrogate your own relationship with them. And it was a book that I had been recommending, um, and then after George Floyd was murdered, recommended to more and more people. But was really struck by an interview that she did um, in July, where she was like, "Yeah, it's like one of the most ordered books, and all these white people." are holding these discussion groups, but they're not finishing the work, right? They're not doing it. Um, And so I started an accountability group, um, which was a mechanism by which every single day I send out a Google survey with her questions. And if people don't complete the Google survey, they get text messages and calls and all of that. And the first group had 21 people in it. the next group I ran um, in January had over a hundred, and we just closed wow. registration for the next one, and we have uh, 187 people registered. Wow. Um, so it really changed my mind in terms of like, you know, I think in, in the past I was like, oh, spaces of only white people, like that's the KKK, right? Like what? <laughs> like like that's not. Those are not leading to anything good. Um, But really realizing like black people do not need to have to listen to us talk and learn about white privilege because how pathetic is it that we're 37 and learning about white privilege? But again, Mm -hmm. that's how white supremacy hurts us all, right? It purposely makes itself unseen to those with privilege so that we are unaware enough of it so that we don't dismantle it. So it has been so interesting to do sort of that now with, eight, nine, and 10-year-olds, right? And so I lead a session for the third to seventh graders and then lead a session for the eighth to 12th graders. And even in those different age groups, seeing the ways in which the ninth graders have so much more to unlearn than the third graders do has really just convinced me that we need to be doing this work earlier and earlier. Because as Donnie said, you know, Black and brown children experience racism. from a very young age, they know what that is. Like one of the first videos that we shared in the second week of the White Affinity Group was a hi-ho video that was black parents talk to their children about interactions with the police. And a lot of the white campers were crying at the end of it, I think in part because they just, it was just such an eye-opening way for them to realize, wow, like my peers experience life in such a different way than I ever will. Right, so we 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 loosely follow. Um, uh, you know, we talk about white privilege, uh, white fragility, which was a fascinating week to do with with young kids. Um, white saviorism. Uh, we're touching this week on white white apathy and how to overcome it, um, and right. anti blackness. Um, and those are sort of the five weeks that we really cover. But it is work, right? And we push the campers um, in a way that's beautiful, right? And and we bring up what's actually happening in camp. And, you know, we'll sort of say, like, hey, why are the white campers talking more? Right? Like, this is about celebrating black lives. Why is your hand always the first one raised, right? Mm. Um, and seeing like, we've seen real changes in some of the campers behaviors in just the five weeks, it's been like, I was talking to a counselor Earlier today, who is saying that they had a, they have a white camper in our white affinity group, um, who always raises their hand first. Who this time around, this past Tuesday, like literally this just happened, raised their hand at the same time as a black camper. A counselor picked that, like said, yeah. you can speak, and the camper said, like, oh, actually, I'd like to hear what name other campers named more, which is like, right, um, which was just really exciting, and so that's, it's been really exciting. But I will say anybody who is thinking about doing white affinity groups, it is so important that you are so intentional and really clear publicly about what the purpose of the group is, because I could see how others would be like, oh, hell no. But then also it's not a place to like vent about like, oh, it's hard to be white, you know, like that is not what it is. It is a place to push ourselves um, and be more conscious aware of how to make anti-racism a part of our a part of our everyday lives right yeah um and cool. so it's it's been exciting to watch
2: so cool um my first thought when you said that after watching that video that everyone was crying i, I was like did then you talk about how you're not you don't cry you don't do white tears when well, it's
1: right well and it was and it was interesting right because we talked about how that's actually why you wanna have these white spaces in a way, because it's not that you can't have any feelings about it, it's that do not put those feelings on the burden of your black friends, yeah. right? And so so it, it is funny that you mentioned that because we did actually talk about that right away. Mm-hmm. And it was funny also my co-counselor, um, my co-facilitator for the White Affinity Group, me and that other person are the only white people in the entire campus community like, universe right now. Um, they were like, when I saw them crying, I really, the first thing I wanted to do was like, be really mad at them. Like, how dare you cry all this? But then realizing they're nine and this is, this is a really upsetting thing. Right. And I, and I think we do need to, you know, it, it, it is sad that we live in a world where that exists, but then talking about, well, why is it that you are finding out about this for the first time and other people aren't. And again, this is why, you know, you, you, you process your feelings with other white people, right? Um, so that you can show up better for your black friends and communities and peers. So, a- absolutely.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and I, I have to remember,
2: like, they're nine. But yeah. that's so cool that, it's ha- that conversations are happening with they're nine.
0: And I was gonna say really quickly, which is why most of our metrics for impact um, for, for camp equity are about action, right? Mm. Um, we, while, while behavioral change and that kind of thing is important. We are interested in what campers do as a result of what they are learning because it is in the action that we know that what we're doing is actually working, right? And so whether that it, whether they're taking direct action, whether they're participating in protests, whether they are bringing up conversations with their parents and families, whatever that action looks like is how we measure the effectiveness of what we're doing at camp. Um, yeah bringing it to the point of, of, of what Lauren is doing with the white affinity group right it's like you don't just you're not just gonna learn about these terms and you know pat, pat yourself about being able to explain what they are like we want to see how you're taking what you're learning and actually applying it in your life
2: oh, so beautiful so beautiful and I, I, I hope that folks listening to this on both ends. Um, or in, in across the, the spectrum of identities can can see your partnership f- f- for more than just like an Ebony and Ivory kind of deal. Although, you know, it's lovely that it's that as well. But it, it is, the, the stuff that you're talking about is so nuanced and so complex and, and it all comes back to like, how do we take the time? How do we take the time and the space to work through this stuff? Because that is... One of like the biggest tenets of whiteness is 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 loyalty and and um, our worth our worthiness of loyalty or whatever worship of time. Thank you, brain. Um, and I'm just so excited for both of you and so proud and and just really can't wait to see where this goes. I will be involved if you you know open up to kindergartners. I will be the first to sign up if I can be. Um, so, tell us about how families, parents, uh, people who are in funding, and a lot of our audiences in the tech industry. So, how, what are the ways in which people can connect with you and get involved?
0: Absolutely. So, you want to start with our website, which is campequity.com. Um, That is the best way. Um, Lauren and I are also on LinkedIn. Um, so, you can reach out that way and really. what we need is to help people get the word out we're on social media we're on instagram we're on facebook make sure you're following us please share the post um and if you have ideas because we're all about what we call learning out loud um and being as open source as possible please reach out Um, if you have partners if you're interested in partnership if you're interested in funding which is also very important because um, it does take work, right? What we say is um, we don't want our campers to have the burden of knowing how much work it takes to, to put this all of this together, but um, it does take work and it does take resources. So anything that people can do in terms of donating, in terms of introducing us to potential funders um, and all of that is is really valuable. Um, anything else, Lauren?
1: Yes, the summer of 2022, we're hoping to have an in-person camp. It's something a lot of our campers have requested. Um, You know, a lot of our campers are meeting for the first time because they live in such, because of redlining and white supremacy and all of that, campers tend to live in really homogeneous areas, right, whether it's race-based, socioeconomic-based, and so they're really making and forming these incredible friendships with young people. Who live across the country from them, and so doing an in-person camp um, is something we're really excited about. So if you, you know, own a casually own a campground, uh, feel free to get in touch with us. Um, and then anybody who has a child, right? Um, one of the neat things, and one of the things I really love about Donnie, and I think why we get along so much, is because we're both big believers in joy and celebration and love. And that is a huge part of camp as well. Like we're not just talking about hard things. We are talking about the joyous burden of being human in all the ways, right? Camp Equity always opens and closes with a dance party. We are about celebrating and uplifting resilience um, while we are talking about hard things. And so it's it's not just, you know, it's not just for, Serious kids that love learning, you know, and watching, uh, you know, documentaries all day long. It really is a fun space, um, and so please sign sign your kids up. Um, there is space for them at Camp Equity.
2: And are you looking for instructors as well, in case? Yeah,
0: we are cool. looking for instructors, and so on our website you will be able to find um, very soon for our upcoming session an instructor form that you can fill out um, and we will follow up from there. And so, and if you have um, amazing organizations that are led by lived experienced leaders that you want to recommend to us, by all means, please reach out. Our general email address is info at campequity.com. Um, and so, you know, if you, you know, you have questions or you're not sure who to go to for what or that kind of thing, you can just email that general um, info account.
1: And the last, the last thing I'll mention is that um, we're always hiring counselors, right? We have new counselors for every session. So if you are passionate about young people and social justice, and you want to work with an incredible cabin uh, and facilitate them through their camp equity experience, please uh, apply to be a counselor with us and join our family.
2: I love it. I I love it. Love it. Love it. Thank you to so much for everything that you do for all the work that you do, both mentally, physically. Um, and emotionally. And,
0: um, I am so excited to see what happens. Thank you for having us, Mandy. Yeah. Thank you so listening. much.
1: Thanks. It's been great.
2: See what I mean? Don't you just want to take like a deep breath and be like, ah, it's going to be okay. If you haven't already pulled over, or if you haven't already missed seeing your kid fall off the monkey bars because you were too busy looking up Camp Equity and how you can get yourself and your family involved, you can go to campequity.com/current camps. And remember, or here for the first time, the deep dive to the power of Pride. The deadline for enrollment is Thursday, April fifteenth, and session begins towards the end of May, just in time for Pride Month. You can find out more about them in general and Camp campequity at campequity.com or shoot an email to info at campequity. For Insta, they are at campequity. For Twitter, they are at campequity. For YouTube, campequity. And, and let me know if you can't find them otherwise. And if you're like me and have kids that are too young and are weighted with Waiting with bated breath for the day when Camp Equity opens to either kindergarten age kids or my kid turns nine or your kid turns nine. I'm with you. I'm with you. And a special congrats, best wishes, all the luck to Donnie as she ventures into bringing a new life into this world. The Equality Matters podcast is a production of the Race Equality Project. Executive producer and writer is me, Mandy B. Our production manager is Caroline Komuhanji. Our editor is Mike Taylor. And finally, if you are interested in having your company take the Race Equality Index, which we're releasing May 1 for participating companies, or if you want to learn more about the results and insights of the last index, please go to raceequalityindex.com to learn more or schedule time with our team. Thanks for listening. See you next time.